From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special event called Jewish Wisdom to Heal the Earth. So I am super excited uh, to be putting on this event together with Joanna Kovalifker, who is the community organizer of Georgia Interfaith Power and Light. Now, uh, is it pronounced Jippel? Gibble. Gibble? Yeah. Oh, it's like Jiff or Gif. Like, like, it's so hard to go, go either way. So it's Gipple. Okay. Gipple. Like, Gimple was like a Yiddish name back in the day, but all right, it's close. So Gipple um, helped Chabad in town with some eco friendly, environmentally friendly lighting. And uh, so we are doing an event and a session tonight that focuses on some Jewish insights into our responsibility toward the environment. Now, I will tell you that right off the bat, it's a topic that some, some present company excluded, somebody might think maybe is a forced topic. Like, it's a modern topic, or it's a topic that people are talking about, and so, like, rabbis are always about, okay, how do we latch onto a modern topic and say, whoa, we had it first. However, as hopefully will be clear tonight, we did have it first. No, I mean, as we'll see tonight, Judaism, Torah, the Talmud, Jewish thought speaks extensively about our obligation and responsibility toward being environmentally friendly. And it's something I think it's very powerful to see it in original sources. Very powerful. Also, and I know, Joanne, I think you're going to, I think I know that you're going to speak about Shemitah. I'm not going to speak about Shemitah at all, but I just want to drop this one nugget. This week's Torah portion is where the laws of Shemitah are stated. This that you can't make, when we set the date, who would have known, literally this week's Torah portion, in other words, the one that we're going to read in Saturday, this coming Shabbat, Bahar, literally the Torah portion opens up, six years you shall work the field, seventh year is we are of rest, that's all I'm going to say, the timing is exquisite, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's all aligned. All right, I want to begin, I, I prepared a bit of a booklet with some text, I, I usually like teaching with text, just so you can see the actual sources for yourself, take it home, share it, or whatever, but you can you know, see it in the original yourself. Please take and pass, and please take and pass. Thank you. And we'll get the back row here as well. Okay, yeah. Rabbi, we did everything first. Judaism skips the world. Oh. That's what we're going to see tonight. But listen, it's the theory. The theory. It's about the implementation, which is where we are. Um, we are uh, positioned to to make an impact. But at least the concept we're going to see. The concepts we're going to see in Torah. First thing I want to do is talk about why it makes sense that Judaism slash Torah slash the Talmud speaks about um, uh, conservation and being environmentally friendly. My my uh, section. The, the thing that I'm going to speak about tonight is mainly about conservation. Primarily about Torah's view on conservation. Um, it makes sense that it's in Jewish thought because Torah 
is the blueprint of creation. Take a look at page two um, of, the, of the handout. You see there it says blueprint. I'll read it. This is from the Midrash. Bereshit Rabbah. Literally, if you've heard of the word Midrash, like everything's in the Midrash. When somebody doesn't know the source, like I think there's a Midrash that says that. But anyway, Midrash, literally mid, the first Midrash is Bereshit Rabbah. It's the Midrash on Bereshit, on the book of Genesis. And 1-1, one, one, it's like the opening Midrash on the Torah says the following. I, speaking in the first person of Torah, I, the Torah, was an Ammon to him. That's from Proverbs. What does Ammon mean? Ammon means artisan. The Torah is saying, I was the artisan's tool of God. In the way of the world, the king of flesh and blood who builds a castle does not do so from his own knowledge, but rather from the knowledge of an architect. And the architect does not build it from his own knowledge, but rather he has scrolls and books in order to know how to make rooms and doorways. So too, God gazed into the Torah and created the world. The simple meaning of this is that, you know, even if you're an architect, you don't just wing it. You don't show up and like, okay, we're just going to pop up a wall and build it, and hopefully it's all going to work out. You have down to, this, to the centimeter, as I turn into the metric system for no reason, down to the, to the inch, exactly the way this building, this edifice is going to be built. You're not winging it. It's very intentional and very methodical. God uses the Torah as the blueprint of creation, which means that if it's in the structure, it must have been in the blueprint. Are you with me on that? Like if you see a building, it was, it was written, it was discussed. Yaakov, do you mind? Uh, oh, somebody here? Oh, amazing. So if you see it in the building, it must be in the blueprint. If there's a challenge that we're facing in the world, it has to be addressed. Our belief tells us, our faith, our tradition tells us, it's somewhere in Torah, and as we'll see tonight, it's everywhere. This idea of, of, environmental, of environmental conservation is everywhere in Torah. Now, we're coming up to the holiday of Shavuot in a few weeks. Known to the children as the holiday of ice cream and cheesecake. Oh, I have more. Um, and the holiday of Shavuot is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, which happened 3,334 years ago as of this Shavuot. It's a long time ago. I'm going to read the, the verse that talks about the Jewish people arriving at the foot of Mount Sinai. Take a look. On the third new moon, third month, after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day, they entered the Sinai Desert. They approached the Sinai Desert on the first day of the third month. The first, that means the first day of the month of Sivan. But either way, where is the Torah given? It's given on Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Desert. And this, our sages have a long conversation about why the Torah was given in a desert. Seems like a weird place. By the way, our Earth, a third of planet Earth, is desert. Fun fact that I just made up. I'm kidding. This is true. No, this is true. One third of planet Earth is desert. Desert, the desert is a major ecosystem within our planet. Huh? Huh? I believe of land, the land itself. Because if you have two thirds ocean and one third desert, I'm pretty sure we're not here. <laughs> no, it's two thirds of land. Sorry, one third of land is desert. There's a lot of desert. 75% Yeah. So. It's a major ecosystem, and the question is, what's the significance of the, the what, what's, what, what is the significance of the fact that we got the Torah in the desert? So the Midrash says, another Midrash says, why was the Torah given in, in the desert? For if it were given in an inhabited land, 
the tribe to which the land belonged would contend that they have first rights to the Torah. It was therefore given in, in, in the desert, in no man's land, to highlight that all have equal rights to the Torah. In other words, if it was given in a city, New York, New York City, great place for divine revelation. In fact, you go to New York, go to Times Square, people will tell you they're giving you divine revelation. It's, it's right. It's, somebody will, will preach the gospel to you right there and then. My point is, if, you get, if God gave us a Torah in, in Manhattan, in New York, the New Yorkers would say it's for us. Yeah? And what about us Southerners? It's, you know, it's, it's for New York. It's not for the South. It's the West Coast, East Coast, North America, Europe. It's, the Torah was given in a desert where no one lives. I mean, you know, other than some exceptions. It's not a place where people typically live. And the message is it's open to everyone. And not just everyone, but every time. It's not related to any... Every other place is, is marked by a, by, a, by a moment in time. You get, go to any major city and it, 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 it's, it takes on the shape of the time. A desert is timeless. Always looks the same. At least in my imagination, certainly it looks the same. Right? Sand, some cacti doing their thing, a tumbleweed blowing by. That's maybe a western. I just kind of mixed up things. It's okay. And it's, but it's timeless. It's just classic... It's a, it's a backdrop waiting to be imprinted upon. And the message here is, not, is not, really much, not really so much about imprinting on Torah as it is about Torah being relevant to everyone, every time, including in 2022, as we think about the question of the environment. Final text on this topic about the eternality of Torah. This comes from the Rebbe's writings in a book called Hayom Yom, which is a, uh, um, a thought for each day of the calendar year. The Torah and mitzvot encompass man from the instant of emergence from his mother's womb until his final time comes. They place him in a light-filled situation with healthy intelligence and acquisition of excellent moral virtues and upright conduct, not only in relation to God, but also in relation to his fellow human being. For whoever is guided by the Torah and the instruction of our sages has a life of good fortune materially and spiritually. What that means is the Torah's guidance for us human beings from birth till our passing in every situation of life, including, again, as we think about the environment and uh, and climate change, etc. Now, typically, we we've this is a, a classic understanding that there's two types of mitzvot. There are mitzvot that govern our relationship with God, and mitzvot that govern our relationship with fellow human beings. In truth, there's a third category of mitzvot that rarely gets talked about, but is absolute reality. There's the mitzvot between us and God, mitzvot between us and others, and mitzvot that pertain to our relationship with the earth itself, including shemitah and other types of agricultural laws and also environmental laws. And as we'll see tonight, there are extensive laws in Judaism about this topic, this third category. It's, it needs to be discussed more, which is why I'm excited about tonight's conversation. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move immediately to page uh, number three, part two, Jewish conservation. And here we have the mitzvah, or really the prohibition, aka it's a negative mitzvah, one that we're not supposed to do, called Baal Tashkit, which means do not destroy. The context of the prohibition against baltashchit, against destroying something of value or of any utility uh, or of the natural universe, that comes from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read the context. I think most of you are familiar with it, but I want to share a few insights on this. The Torah talks about, the, the context here is laws of war. And here's what the verses say. If you besiege a city for many days in order to wage war against it, to capture it, you should not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you may not cut them down. It is the tree, sorry, is the tree of the field a man, 
is the tree of the field a man that you should include it in, in the siege before you? However, if you know it is a tree which is not a fruit tree, you may destroy it by cutting it down, use it to build a barricade against the city that is waging war with you until it is conquered. What we have here are two categories of trees. There are fruit trees, fruit-bearing trees, and non-fruit-bearing trees. And the Torah gives us two different laws. When it comes to a fruit-bearing tree, even if you're waging war against the city and you want to besiege it and you want to cut off the food supply or you want to use that wood as a barricade or as battering rams, whatever it is, don't cut down the fruit trees. Use the non-fruit-bearing trees to do that. Now, are, are you allowed to cut down non-fruit-bearing trees for no reason? Clearly the answer is no. There's only one context in which even the non-fruit-bearing trees... Are you with me on this? There's only one context in which the non-fruit-bearing trees can be cut down, and that is in the context of war. It, and it doesn't have to be only war, but it means when there's a strong utility, when there's a strong need. Fruit-bearing trees? When we bought our house, so I had somebody come out to do like landscaping, gardening, whatever it is, and there was a tree that we thought, eh, I don't know if we need that tree. It was like growing in kind of sideways in the backyard. It was just, I don't know, doing its own thing. And I told this guy, uh, you know, can we get rid of the tree? He's like, Rabbi, it's a fruit tree. I'm like, I didn't know it's a fruit tree. <laughs> you know, I'm not, not a tree. There were no fruit growing on it. But he's like, no, this is a fruit tree, and we're not touching it. He happens to be a Jewish landscaper, so he's like up to date on the laws. Um, but it's, it's a real thing. It's a legit thing. This is the original context. By the way, you know the whole Tubashvat? We celebrate Tubashvat, the birthday of the trees, because like, we're like trees. It's a very, where does that come from? That last verse of the first paragraph, where it asks rhetorically, is the tree of the field a man that you should include it in the siege before you? Why are you cutting down a fruit tree if you want to wage war against the, against the city? Wage war against them, but don't, don't take out the tree. That's what the Torah says. But if you don't, re if you read it non-rhetorically as a not, if you don't read it as a question, the same Hebrew words could mean, could be translated as the tree of the field is a man. You just change the is into a different place in English. The tree of of, a, of the field is a man. The human being is like a tree in the field. Most people, when they when we encounter discussions of Tubashvat and the birthday of the trees and the connection between humans and trees, are reading the verse. At not as a question, but as a statement. Ki ha'adam eitz ha'sada, for a tree, for a man is a tree in the field. But if you really want to know the context of the verse, it's asking rhetorically, is the man a tree of the field that you should, or is the tree of the field a man that you should wage war against it? Nonetheless, we, we really can read it both ways. Rhetorically and also more, I guess, literally, or not literally, where it's actually making that, that correlation. Be that as it may, what we learn from here is the prohibition against cutting down the fruit-bearing tree. Maimonides classically says, explains, and this is not just Maimonides, it's based on years, generations of scholarship, that it's not only trees that cannot, that cannot be destroyed, it's anything. Cannot, nothing can be destroyed. No wasting. Take a look at what he says right there, middle of page, middle of page three. And not only trees, but whoever breaks vessels, tears clothing, wrecks that which is built up, stops fountains, or wastes food in a destructive manner, transgresses the commandment of Baal you should not destroy. That prohibition against destroying is applicable not just to fruit-bearing trees, but anything, vessels, clothing, um, any building that's built up to knock it down, for no reason, stopping a fountain, wasting food, etc. And we're going to see examples of this in the, uh, in the Talmud, and in other areas of Jewish thought and Jewish law. Any questions so far on Baal Tashkent? Make sense so far?
Yes? Greg. What is Baal Tash? Baal means don't. Tashchit means waste or destroy. Oh. Yeah. Now, Baal, oh, hold one second, just to clarify. Baal could also be spelled Bet Ayin Lamid, like the Baal Shemtov or Baalabas, which means the owner of, but that's not what this means. Baal means Bet Lamid, without the Ayin in the middle, means don't. It's like, like do not. Baal Tashchit means do not destroy, um, or you should not destroy. So it's not just trees, it's really anything. There's a wild story in the Talmud Shanti Kedushin that I wanted to share with you. I have to give you the context of this story because it's a weird story. The Talmud is discussing what is the obligation for children to honor their parents. And when we talk about children honoring parents, we're not really, I know we were told this as kids and we tell our kids as little kids this, the Torah didn't really mean Sorry for speaking on behalf of Torah. In the Ten Commandments, when it says honor your parents, we're not talking about a 10-year-old kid, you know, cleaning up the room because their parents, you listen to your parents. The mitzvah of honoring your parents and taking care of your parents is foundationally when our parents get older and they need caretakers. The question is, who, is, who has that responsibility? This is a very important topic in Jewish law and in Judaism that also rarely, I believe, rarely gets discussed. Honoring your parents, the Talmud says, means just like they fed you, cleaned you, dressed you, took you out and about, you should do the same for them. When? When do you think? When they can't eat, when they can't dress themselves, when they can't get around on their own, right? That's what, so the mitzvah of kibar ava'im honoring our parents, again, we were told, clean up your room, you have to listen to your parents. All right, and that's true. But that's, you don't need the Ten Commandments to tell you that. You need the Ten Commandments to tell you when the stakes are much higher. When you have your own family, and your parents are getting older, and now you're like, I don't know, I don't have a lot of time, I don't have resources. Then it becomes complicated. The Torah reminds us, they did that for you. See, typically we think, okay, our parents did it for us, so we're going to pay it forward to the next, to, we're just going to keep it moving. And the Torah, the Torah says, don't forget to mirror it back to the one who actually helped you. So in that context, the Talmud talks about um, children getting angry at their parents. Basically judging their parents' behavior. Which never happens, right? <laughs> Our parents do something like, what were you thinking? Because we know, obviously, hey, welcome. Because obviously we know better, right? So it's like, what were you thinking? So the Talmud here, Silken Seams, where it says that Silken Seams, page number, uh, page number three. So the Talmud tells a story of a rabbi. I'm not, gonna, I'm not recommending this. I'm just telling you the story. Who tried to provoke his son to see if his son would be like one of those kids that gets angry at the parent for making a bad decision. It's like, what? You answered that call and gave your banking information. Okay, maybe you should like you should step in over there. But here's what happens. Rav Huna, page three, last text. Rav Huna tore up a silk garment in the presence of his son Rabba, saying to himself, "I will test him to see whether he gives into his temper or not." So he like destroyed something to see if his son would get angry at him. The Talmud asks, one second, but Rav Huna violated Baltashchit says you should not destroy. So wait a second. Yeah, he had this whole master plan of like testing his son, blah, blah, blah. We don't even know how that story ends. But 
one second, how do you just destroy a silk garment? You can't do that. That's illegal in Jewish law. The Talmud answers, no, he tore it at the seam. Rashi explains, he tore it at the seam, which would not cause it a substantial loss of value since it can, be eas- since it can easily be repaired. In other words, the Talmud literally addresses this question. Here's a guy who wants to see if his kid's going to get angry at him and judge him and, you know, whatever. And so he tears, he tears an item of, uh, I guess, a, a garment. What does he say? A silk? Yeah, a silk garment. And we don't even know, again, how his son reacts, but the Talmud immediately steps in and says, wait a second, how's he ripping a silk? You can't do that. Even if you have a good reason, you can't just rip something. You can't destroy something. So the Talmud answers, he didn't destroy it. He ripped it at the seam. Okay, so you'll fix it. What do we see here? You can't destroy. Even if you have a good reason, you can't destroy. Ah, bread and beer. Top of page four. I love this quote. I love this quote from the Talmud. Let me give you a background on this one as well. I try to find like unusual stories and cases that, you know, that we could re- that we that could resonate with us. Look, you ever have? I, I mean, I, I certainly have had relatives in this boat where, like my grandfather, of blessed memory, he was. If you asked him, like, okay, so what do you want to eat? Whatever we have. It's like if there was some stuff still in the fridge. Why why do we need new food, right? You know. You know people like that, or maybe you're like that? Like, why do we need to get more food if we have food? I, it's three days old. So what? Doesn't matter. So it can come from different places. But there's a Jewish place where it comes from. There's a halachic, a Jewish legal place where it comes from. You know what? Why are you making new food? What do you do with the old food? You're going to throw it out? This is not wartime scarcity you know, trauma that's being passed down from generation. Okay, maybe that's also. But this is OG Talmud. This is straight up Jewish law. You can't... Rav Chista said, top of page four, when one can eat barley bread, but instead eats wheat bread, he violates the commandment of Baltashka, you should not destroy. What does that mean? He has the barley bread ready to go. But I don't want to eat the barley bread. I want wheat bread. Why? Because I like it better. So then you're going to buy or make or whatever wheat bread. And what do you do with the barley bread? You're going to throw it out. You're going to get rid of it. Put it, yeah. Till, yeah, which we all do. Until such time as we're like, oh, let me clear out this freezer. <laughs> then it doesn't hurt as much because it took a few stages until it went out into the garbage. The point is, Rav Chista says, one second. You can't, like, because it's an upgrade. In, in my, I'm give, I know I'm not giving the exact same case. It would be like, the fresher food versus like the day-old food. It's like, well, I want the fresher food. And the Talmud says, not so fast, cowboy. You may not get what you want. I mean, at least Jewish law may not agree with, with that type of attitude of getting rid of the old. So I want the new iPhone. So what do I do with the old one? Oh, good. At least we had an answer for that. Okay, good, fine. The halavai. Halavai should, should go to a good cause. Rapapa said, same thing. When one can drink beer but drinks wine... He violates the commandment of Baltashkin. Now, again, you have to understand the context here. If you have the beer, right, but you're like, oh, I'm not going to drink the beer. I'll get rid of the beer because I want to get some wine. Well, then what's going to happen with the beer? So you're, you're wasting it. And again, even if it's an upgrade, but you have some, something, so then why are you wasting what you have? Does that make sense? By the way, I saw some commentaries that said that Rapapa was a beer maker. So of course he's going to say, drink the beer. Anyway, 
Super conspiracy theory right there. <laughs> Marisha says that. Commentary on the Talmud. Anyway, it's a very interesting. There's lots, lots of subplots in the Talmud. When you study Talmud, there's lots of subplots and commentaries. It's a lot of fun. But the point here is, when it comes to food, you have Talmudic wisdom on what to do with leftovers. It's a cool concept. I think it's a great concept. Now, in addition to intentionally or wantonly destroying uh, uh, sorry, in addition to there being a prohibition against actively destroying, there's also, Jewish law also talks about a prohibition against passively destroying. Take a look at, at the next, uh, the next uh, excerpt from the Sifri, which is one of the Midrashim, the Halachic Midrash, a Midrash that's less about stories and more about Halacha, Jewish law. It says, you shall not destroy, we had this verse before, you shall not destroy his trees by wielding an axe against them. Now, we only know from this verse not to wield an axe how do we know that it's prohibited to withhold water from the trees and thus indirectly cause their demise? A person might say, you know what, I'm not going to cut them down, but I'll just withhold the water, and uh, automatically what's going to happen is the trees are going to wither. So that's also problematic. For this reason, the verse states, you shall not destroy his trees, meaning by any means. Not only with an axe, don't destroy his trees. No matter how you want to come, come around to do it, you can't do it. Now, there are some exceptions. Which is, which is what part three deals with. There are some exceptions. Because, you know, if you just strictly followed, literally followed what, what I've been presenting thus far, you would think you can never touch anything, ever destroy anything, never chop down any trees to build anything. Well, of course, that's not true because there, there are situations where it is permitted. So part three, we're going to talk about permitted destruction. And here is one way of framing it. The smag, Sefer Mitzvah Gedolot, explains this in the exception. Anything that is more beneficial than destructive is deemed not to be baltashkit. In other words, if the utility outweighs the destruction, then it's not considered to be baltashkit. So, for example, somebody is demolishing a home to build a bigger one. Okay, well, you know what? The truth is, it gets a little bit questionable as to how you define more beneficial than destructive. Okay? So that is, I don't know if there's a hard and fast rule with it. Yes? Well, if you're Orthodox Jew, it's like a developer. Right. Chop down trees. Correct. That's why I'm not a developer. See, I'm not faced with this moral quandary. By the way, no actual trees were harmed. You look around the room here, you see the mechitza that's been scattered. No actual trees were harmed or chopped down in the making of this. I actually don't know what these things are made of, but they haven't wil wilted in years. Yeah. I'm assuming they're good to go. Um, yeah, it's probably trees. Sorry, what? Probably chopped down trees. Oh, are they? Well, somehow, well, I guess we're still we're using them. I guess that's good, giving it a second life. Here's the deal. Greg, you're asking a good question. Can a developer, is it kosher? I mean, let's phrase it as a question. Can a developer, is it kosher, according to Jewish law, to develop, cutting down a ton of trees and, and build something? So on the one hand, one could argue, yeah, it's more beneficial because now you have housing for people. The other hand, you could say, well, I don't know. I mean, like, at what point do we say we don't need to build, like, the latest and greatest uh, you know, uh, sky rises and condos, maybe what we have is enough and we'll figure it out. That's why, you know, it's hard to, to, to come up with a hard and fast rule from these principles, but the, the, I think, and this is true throughout Jewish law, is we're given the, what's the word I'm looking for? We're given the guidelines, guidelines and we're trusted by God. Who's watching? No, we're trusted by God. To, 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 to wield those 
properly. Maybe you plan a trade. Yeah, well, and, and take a look at how the Rebbe qualifies that. Who benefits? Baltashchit, the Rebbe says, may be waived only when the benefit is appreciated in the very place of the previous destruction. Things that are, things that, ah, uh, that didn't make sense. Things that remain destructive, though they may lead to and cause benefit elsewhere, may still be prohibited. In other words, if you're chopping down trees in one forest to build condos in another part, of, in another country, that may be problematic. Because if you're cutting down something, it likely, according to this understanding, needs to benefit that area itself. If you're just destroying one place to benefit another place, it's a little bit, little bit more questionable. Not saying definitively yes or no, but a little bit more questionable. So you're chopping down wood to build a treehouse right here. Okay, maybe treehouse is a bad example. To build, you know, a structure right here. Okay, that's one thing. Look, we live in a world in where you know in which we don't blink. We, people, many people don't don't bat an eye at just cutting down stuff. Right, just destroying forests and just destroying things. And it's totally antithetical to Jewish values. We have the values, how we apply it. Okay, but if you have the value system, at least at least you'll feel guilty on one level. At least it's not a given that you should for sure do it. So now, how far it goes, okay, we'll figure that out. But the starting point is, don't touch it. Starting point. When in doubt, oh, let's say we have a doubt. Take a look at bottom page four. In any instance where one is uncertain if the value of the trees being cut down surpasses the, their value of bearing fruit, it is prohibited to cut the trees down, and it is a danger to do so. Look at that, danger. Wow, now we're getting like a, like a certain general's warning here. Um, if you're unsure whether the benefit outweighs the destruction, then don't do it. That's, that's what Chassam Sofer, Chatam Sofer says. If you're unsure, then better not touch it. Even if it is done in a manner that is questionable, we consider it as deliberately destroying. If you're saying, well, maybe it's, you know, I can use it for something, whatever, so I'm going to cut it down. He says, don't do it, unless you're sure that it's, that it's kosher. Now, even as we have exceptions. Now, uh, let, me, let me take a step before I go into the next text. Look. Look around. We have beautiful building. You look outside. Beautiful structures. I don't believe that Jewish law would advocate going back to Stone Age, Flintstones, bam, 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 right? To go back to that time with simple structures and no, like I, I, I don't believe that that's the intention here of Jewish law. But again, the intention is that even as we develop, that we do so in a conscientious fashion. We do so with a heart. We do so with a soul. We do so with appreciation for the world and not just wantonly depleted and say, not my problem, someone else is going to deal with it. That's not the Jewish way to do it. It's you ask the question, right? What's the value? Maybe you plant another tree. Maybe you replace it with another thing, right? But you, you tend to the earth because you realize that it's not just so I can put on my company that we're environmentally friendly to get more business. It's because that's the task, this is the last text that I wanted to share tonight, but I'll, I'm not going to say it now, but because that's our task in life. Our task in life is to tend to the earth. We, 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 we cultivate a relationship with God, with our fellow human being, and with the earth. That's the third, not the third rail, that's something negative. That's the third, um, the third line of our obligation in life. Now, even when we're allowed to take away trees, the Talmud tells us about how to do so with heart. Once, middle of page five, once Shmuel's field laborer brought him some dates. This is a very cool story. 
Again, I try to pick stories that are like a little unusual and colorful. So once Shmuel's field labor brought him some dates, as he partook of them, the dates, he tasted wine in them. Look at that. The guy had a palate, azai, unbelievable. He did not have long COVID. This guy was like, he was sharp. He had dates with a little bit of wine. When he asked the laborer how that came about, he told them that the date trees were placed between the vines, the grapevines. Shmuel said to his workers, since they are weakening the vines so much, uproot the date trees tomorrow. Now, if you're a farmer, you will know that date trees take a lot of resources of the earth. And if date trees are amongst the vines, it's, not, it's, not, it's ultimately going to harm the, the grapevine. So he told his workers, no commingling, pull out, pull out the dates. Second story. When Rav Chista, different rabbi, saw certain palms among the vines, again, amongst the, the vineyard, he said to his field laborers, remove them, remove the palms with their roots. Vines can easily buy palms, but palms cannot buy vines. In other words, vines, a vineyard is more, more expensive, is more uh, valuable than, than palm trees, so pull them out. But let, look at what the Chatam Sofer says. This teaches us astringency. If you pay attention to the language, both of the rabbis told them to pull out, uproot, they said uproot the date, remove them, remove the palm with the roots. Why? Chatam Sofer says, this teaches us astringency. When it is feasible to relocate the tree, one must do so, even when the building is deemed more beneficial than the tree and one is prohibited to cut the tree down. The rabbis didn't say destroy the other tree. They said uproot it. And what does that mean? With the intention of planting it elsewhere. Even when you have to get rid of it for another, for, for a benefit of something else, a greater benefit, you still try to do so in a way that saves the tree. You look at this, you see the sensitivity here? It's unbelievable. You think, okay, I have a green light. If it's going to harm the vineyard, I'm allowed to because it's tree against tree and whatever, so I can sacrifice this one for that one, so I'm just going to get rid of it and burn it. No. The Talmud says the rabbis told their workers to pull it out with the roots. Why they say uproot it? Because the intention was to replant it. Why replant it? Because there's no excuse to destroy it if you can replant it. It's, it's a sensitivity. It's a perspective. It's unbelievable. Next, Tom, next Talmud case. Preserving life. A teak chair. It's a type of wood. Was broken up for Shmuel. A table made of juniper wood was broken up for Rabbi Yehuda. Why were these broken up? They were chopped up to fi make firewood. It was the winter. It was cold and they needed wood. A footstool was once broken up for Rabbah, whereupon Abayah said to Rabbah, but are you not infringing Baal Tashkit? And I was, how are you destroying the footstool? Rabbah replied, Baal Tashkit, in respect to my body, is more important to me. You see what he says there? It's an interesting, interesting line. It's basically his body, his health is going to deteriorate. He, Baal Tashkit means don't destroy. Well, I'm not allowed to destroy, neglect or destroy. I'm not allowed to destroy or neglect my own body also. Right? So the question is, which priority comes first to take care of my body or take care of the, the chair or the table or the footstool? And so Rabbi says, I got to take care of my own health first. My life comes before the chair or the table or the footstool so I can chop it up. I can break up that wooden chair, table or footstool, use the wood for firewood to stay warm and remain healthy. However, look what the Tzemach Tzedek writes. That's the, he was the third Rebbe of Chabad. He writes, the Talmudic language indicates that in essence, there really is Baal in these cases, even as we take into account overriding health considerations. In other words, it, you're still destroying. The only thing is that I have an obligation to my health that overrides my obligation to the chair, 
but it still is considered about it still is considered destroying, which should still make us uncomfortable to do so. Even when we have permission to do so, it should make us uncomfortable to do so. As opposed to the perspective of the world is my oyster or the trees are available, I can do whatever I want, I have no responsibility, and I don't actually care. Does it make sense? It's, it's starting from a different, po- different perspective. It's starting from the point of don't touch as opposed to why not touch. It's just a different starting point. And, and, and it has a major, major implication. All right, the last, the last section of what I wanted to share with you is part four where we talk about the spirit of conservation. Before I jump into that section, any questions or comments thus far? Question, comments? No? Okay. Here we go. There's a bit of a typo here. The header is duplicated, the exception. It's not the exception. Eco-friendly tabernacle. Okay, we're going to speak about now spiritual messages vis-a-vis conservation. So the Torah says in Exodus, and you shall make the planks for the the Mishkan, the tabernacle, of acacia wood upright. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, was made of acacia wood. So the Midrash asks, why acacia wood? God teaches the proper conduct for the generations that follow. If one desires to build a home from a tree that is fruit-bearing, even non-edible fruit, we tell him, God is the king of kings, and to him the entire world belongs. Yet when he instructed us to build a tabernacle, in other words, his home, he said not to bring wood unless it is from a tree that bears no fruit at all. How much more so you? Look at that. God's own home. God's own home is built of a non-fruit-bearing tree. It's made of acacia wood, a non-fruit-bearing tree. And the Midrash says, you know why? Because if if someone ever in, in, in the history of mankind... If they ever want to build a home made of wood that is fruit bear, a fruit-bearing tree, you, say, you tell them, even God used non-fruit-bearing tree. You're better than God. Even God was sensitive to nature. Even God, right, who, who could do whatever he wants. He could have said, give me, you know, whatever it is. And he still was sensitive to the environment. Of course he is. I mean, when you think about it, he created it. He wants, he wants it around. And yet, right, and, 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 and he still was, was, was doing so in, in the most, um, uh, the, the, with the greatest sensitivity to the, to the ecology, to, to the environment. How much more so should us human beings be sensitive even when we're building our homes? Again, going back to the idea of a developer, right? God was a conscious developer. He, he wasn't just, you know, uh, destructive. He was very careful about what, what would be used for his, uh, for his mishkan, for his tabernacle. Same thing is true for us. Sefer HaChinuch, such a beautiful, beautiful paragraph here in the middle of page 6. The idea behind the mitzvah baltashket, i.e. not to destroy, is to cherish the good and useful and to cleave to it so that we are only connected to good, not evil, and destruction. For this is the way of the pious and righteous, for this is the way of pious and righteous people. Those who love peace are happy when they can do good to others and bring them close to the Torah. They will not cause even a grain of mustard to be lost from the world, and they are pained by any sort of destruction that they witness. If they can withhold destruction, they do so with all their power. The Chinuch writes, Mitzvah 529, which is Baal Tashchit, this mitzvah we've been talking about tonight, that what is the spirit of this mitzvah? The spirit of this mitzvah is to be a good person. Someone who is sensitive to, the, to creation, 
someone who's sensitive to the environment is probably sensitive to other forms of life and sensitive to God. Someone who sets someone to who, who, who witnesses destruction of even a single grain of mustard and it hurts, that's a sensitivity that the Torah is trying to inculcate within us human beings. To be good people and sensitive people and to want things to be good and peaceful and not destructive and I don't know, not destructive. Not destructive. That's that's not that's not the type of person that the Torah wants us to be. It's a powerful idea. Baltasha is not just about trees. It's about a way of life. It's about sensitivity to things and not wishing and not looking to destroy things. There's a story that's pretty famous in Chabad circles. The story pertains, the story takes place with the, with the sixth Chabad Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, who passed away in 1950, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. So he tells the story when he was a kid. It's an unbelievable story. When it's about the Kabbalah of, of, um, of conservation, this is it. It was the summer of 1896, he writes in his memoirs, and father and myself were strolling in the fields of Balivka. Balivka? Anybody know where that is? All right. A hamlet, oh, here it says, a hamlet near Lubavitch. Lubavitch, by the way, is Belarus, which everyone knows nowadays, right? Everyone's familiar with that part of the world, for better or for worse. The grain was near to ripening, and the wheat and grass swayed gently in the breeze. Father, t- father said to me, see godliness. Every movement of each stalk and grass was included in God's primordial thought of creation, in God's all-embracing vision of history, and is guided by divine providence toward a godly purpose. Unbelievable lines he's telling this kid, right? This is the child as an adult reflecting on, on this conversation years later. He says, every, I'm going to repeat it again, every movement of each stalk and grass was included in God's primordial thought of creation. In other words, it's from the original vision of creation. It's part of God's all-embracing vision of history, and it's guided by divine providence toward a godly purpose. Past, present, and future are all, this, this, the movement of, of every stalk and, and blade of grass is part of a much larger picture. Walking, story continues, walking, we entered the forest. Engrossed in what I had heard, excited by the gentleness and seriousness of my father's words, I absentmindedly tore a leaf off a passing tree. Holding a while in my hands, I continued my thoughtful pacing, occasionally tearing small pieces of leaf and casting them to the winds. You know, you start ripping up a leaf and you're just... The holy Ari, that's the Arizal, the famous, the famous Kabbalist, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the 15th, 16th century Kabbalist from Safed, Israel. The holy Ari, Father said to me, says that not only is every leaf on a tree a creation invested with divine life, created for a specific purpose within God's intent and creation, but, page 7 but also that within each and every leaf there is a spark of a soul that has descended to earth to find its correction and fulfillment. So not only is each leaf alive, it has a soul that requires a tikkun, a correction, some sort of repair. The Talmud rules, continued his father, that a man is always responsible for his actions, whether awake or asleep. That means if you're sleeping in someone else's house, your guest, and you knock over their lamp while you're sleeping in a dream, you can't say, I was sleeping, I'm not liable. You're, the Talmud says you're liable for damages even when you're asleep. In other words, Adam, language of the Talmud, Adam mu'ad la'olam, a person is always responsible for their actions, whether awake or asleep. The difference between wakefulness and sleep, back inside, is in the inner faculties of man, his intellect and emotions. The external faculties function equally well in sleep. In other words, you're breathing. 
Only the inner faculties are confused. Therefore, dreams present us with contradictory truths. A waking man sees the real world. A sleeping man does not. This is the deeper significance of wakefulness and sleep. When one is awake, one sees divinity. When asleep, one does not. Nevertheless, our sages maintain that man is always responsible for his actions, whether awake or asleep. And now he, the punchline to his child. Only this moment we have spoken of divine providence, and unthinkingly, you tore off a leaf, played with it in your hand, twisting, squashing, and tearing it to pieces, throwing it in all directions. How can, he tells his son, and the son is repeating in his memoirs this, this story. How can one be so callous toward a creation of God? This leaf was created by the Almighty for a specific purpose and is imbued with a divine life force. It has a body and it has life. In what way is the eye of this leaf inferior to yours? That story is powerful. And as the previous Rebbe concludes, I believe he concludes with the line, Das is chinuch. Yiddish for this is education. That's how you educate a child. And by the way, I know I said it forcefully, he wasn't berating his son. It was with love and with warmth, but impressing upon him how sacred creation is. Every leaf is sacred. To rip off a leaf disconnected from its life force, right? It can't grow anymore. And to rip it and just throw it into pieces means that you're wasting it. It means you believe that it has no utility other than a plaything in your hands. That's not a Jewish thing. Certainly not according to Kabbalah, according to Jewish mystical spiritual thought. Everything, including every leaf, every blade of grass, has a soul, has a purpose. And to just rip it up and throw it into the wind means that somehow you believe that you are important, but the leaf isn't. In what way is the eye of this leaf inferior to yours? That's a powerful question. I'll conclude with this from the Midrash, a different Midrash. Final text. When God created Adam, he took him to view all the trees in the Garden of Eden. Then he told him, you see how pleasant and beautiful all my, is all my work? See to it that you do not ruin and destroy my world. And I'll tell you, God's call to Adam is his call to us. The mandate hasn't changed. God says, I create a beautiful world. It's beautiful. Don't mess it up. It's like one test game. Did Noah take the plant life with yes. him? Yes. Yes. He took plant life with him. And also it says that some... Let's say that some plant life survived somehow. I believe he took some. Well, the comes back with them. To the branch. Right. Which indicates... Yes. Which indicates that it was not destroyed. Not all life on... Right. Because it flew out. And it came back. Yeah, I was wondering if he like, also took some yeah. seeds. Yeah. I, my, my, I, my recollection is yes, but I would have to look it up. It's a great question. You know, now they have, um, where is it, Norway? Where is it? Where is the seed, where they have all the seeds of the world? Where is that? They have a, they have a vault. Somewhere in the U.S., I mean, in Norway. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, I thought, also thought it was Europe. Maybe a few places. They have, like, a place, a vault, where they keep, like, Copies. I don't know what else, what else to call it, but like of all known plant life, so that in case anything happens, we got a fallback plan, which is really cool. I, I hope you enjoyed the selection that I pulled from various places in Jewish thought, and I, I hope that the overarching sentiment comes through, and that is we have a mandate. It's not like, you know, if we're feeling generous or we're in the mood. We have a, literally a Jewish 
biblical, Talmudic, Jewish, legal, spiritual, Kabbalistic mandate to take care of the world. It's not like a new age. It's not, it's not like 2022, it's like the trend. This is straight up, this is thousands of years of Jewish scholarship. This is a sampling of thousands of years of Jewish scholarship. The fact that we, that maybe, you know, people didn't take it seriously, that has not, that's not the fault of Torah. That's just human beings being human beings. But as, as this conversation is, is on the front burner, let's embrace it, not only from the space of, of, of environmentalism, but also Judaism. Not, they're not at odds. I'm just saying, but let's, let's understand that this is one of the greatest, one of the biggest problems is that for some reason, caring for the environment has been pitted, I don't want to get like, has been pitted as a thing that's not aligned with crazily with traditional values, at least in some circles. And nothing could be further from the truth. This is like as old as the Bible itself. It's literally like OG's Ju- like Bible, Torah, Judaism, Jewish law. It's like the original, it's like the first stuff. God shows Adam and Eve the trees. Don't mess this up. We still have that task, yeah. Um, thinking of the tabernacle section. Yeah, wasn't that great? You know I love the tabernacle I know. <laughs> Yes. Oh, so I don't know. Oh, don't know. That's a question. We, the question is when this ark was made, what wood are they using? The answer is I don't know. I didn't commission this personally. But I will tell you that if we're taking this seriously, then the next time we build an ark or anything, we'll ask the question, how is this sourced? It's not a, it's not a weird question. It's a Jewish question. It could be, when I say weird, I'm saying it's not like I'm going to sound weird when I say this. It's not weird. It's not, it's not like, you don't have to feel like, well, I'm not like an activist, so I'm not going to ask the question. You don't have to be an activist, right? It's a Jewish question. It's a legitimate, not legitimate, it's a necessary Jewish question. Where's it coming from? Yeah. I'm kind of feeling bad for, well, like, um, I mean, I love Akasi, but I made a bracelet with right. it. But, but it's like, it's only been chosen because it's not prepared. So I feel like there's a hierarchy of trees. I'm feeling like... Yeah, well, the Torah says that. I know. The Deuteronomy you know. says that. Yeah. That if you're siege, if waging siege against the, the against the other country, so then you can, for not for no reason, but for the purpose of a barricade, you can use the non-fruit bearing trees, but not the fruit bearing trees. So, but I'm, I'm saying, I feel bad for the, the non-fruit bearing trees. trees. Okay, that's fine. I I don't. I'm not going to take away that feel. That's fine. <laughs> feel so. Yeah, it's a last resort. If you need it, you got you to do what you got to do sometimes. But, like, I get that. If we can go through life and not destroy anything, and live, that would be great. That would be the ideal. No, there's no mitzvah to go ahead and destroy things. Is there a hierarchy? Apparently. Is it uncomfortable? Maybe. But at this point, I step away. <laughs> okay. All right. I hope uh, this made sense, and I hope you enjoyed it and appreciated it. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Phase one, this is phase two. This is uh, less text, more practical. Uh, but really, it's, it's the same message. So, <clears throat> excuse me. It's my brother, I can do that. Okay. This is for yes for donation. It's later. Okay. This conversation is timely as it is the Shemitah year, which began this past Rosh Hashanah. Uh, 
I assume everyone knows, but just in case, quick history of the Shemitah year. As soon as the Jews settled in the Holy Land, they began to count and observe seven-year cycles. Every cycle would culminate in a sabbatical year known as Shemitah, which literally means to release. The literal commandment is that the land should rest, as the Torah says, and the land shall rest a Sabbath to Hashem. This occurs by people refraining from planting, pruning, plowing, harvesting, or engaging in any form of working the land. I could be wrong, but I'm willing to bet that no one in this room is a farmer. So how do we interpret this commandment as non-farmers? Also, this commandment is really intended for the land of Israel. So how do we, living in the, di in the diaspora, honor and fulfill this commandment in 2022 in Atlanta, Georgia? We can start by fully appreciating what the very commandment is telling us. The great commentator and philosopher Maimonides wrote that some of the laws of the sabbatical year are meant to make the earth more fertile and stronger through letting it lie fallow. The late chief lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs commented further, adding that based on this teaching, the Israelites were therefore commanded to conserve the soil by giving it periodic fallow years and not pursue short-term gain at the cost of long-term desolation. Indeed, research on how one-year fallow affects soil quality has indicated that soil quality increases in the subsequent years. However, the Torah does not merely say, let the land rest. Rather, it says, let the land rest a Shabbat to Hashem. What the Sabbath does for humans and animals, the sabbatical year does for the land. The earth, too, is entitled to its periodic rest. So letting the earth rest is an act of respect, devotion, and patience. To be a good steward of the earth is to exemplify being a good Jew. Our traditions actually make it really easy to be a good steward of the earth. The prayers we say for literally everything we eat. So when we bread, hamotzi lecha min haaretz. Who brings forth bread from the earth? Borei pri haetz. Who creates fruit of the tree? For vegetables, everyone's favorite. Borei pri haadama. Who creates the fruit of the ground? We even have an entire holiday dedicated to the birthday of the trees, Tubishvat. We have the value of continuity, Lador Vador. A major theme in Judaism is the importance of passing on our teachings and our, our values and traditions. The teaching of Tikkun Olam, which is commonly referred to as repair the world, but another interpretation or translation means to do something with the world that will not only fix any damage, but also improve upon it and bring it closer to the harmonious state for which it was created. Lastly, the commandment to show kindness to the stranger. The Jewish sages tell us that we must treat strangers with kindness and love them as ourselves. This commandment is mentioned 36 times more than any other commandment or prohibition in the Torah. The rabbis take such great pains to remind us of the importance of kindness because we have been in need of such kindness countless times in our own history. We've been outsiders, the less fortunate, and the victims of discrimination. In the case for caring for the environment, the stranger is our own neighbors right here in Atlanta who can only afford to live in land next to power plants or landfills. They have polluted soil, contaminated water, little access to fresh food, or they are victims of climate change and live on floodplains and are often drowned out of their homes by storms or suffering from unprecedented heat waves and droughts. So I'm gonna get a tiny bit scientific just to bring the point home. So how do we know there really is climate change and that we are responsible? The science is very simple. Global warming is real. 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently released a report that is widely, almost unequivocally viewed as the most comprehensive and reliable assessment of climate change. And the report specifically states we are on track to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming within the next two decades. So two decades is only 20 years. That's, you know, not that long ago. It's just not that far away. Our understanding of climate science is even stronger and more sophisticated than ever. Uh, I am sure most of us heard of the, the horrible heat waves in the Pacific Northwest. Those were studied and models confirmed that it was virtually impossible that the extreme rise in temperature could have occurred without human influence global warming. We are seeing more and more weather events that are declared unprecedented. However, they are likely to become more common. So other than being uncomfortably hot, what's so bad about global warming? A lot. Sea level rise, longer droughts, more flash floods, more fires, slower. Uh, moving and stronger hurricanes, more intense cold air outbreaks while the poles warm faster, hotter temperatures overall, increased desertification, including parts of Israel. I'll talk about that. Uh, many areas already fraught with tension over water rights, food and water resource challenges leading to climate refugees. So let's talk about Israel. Israel. Yes, so that's exactly right. So Israel is incredibly vulnerable. According to a Ben-Gurion University study, if we enter an era of what scientists call extreme climate change, meaning an increase in average global temperatures of more than two degrees Celsius, the Negev Desert will expand 200 kilometers northward. That means the desert will stretch far beyond Beersheba, beyond Renana and Haifa, all the way into Lebanon. Almost all of the Shvila, which is the agriculturally productive lowlands, could be gone. On top of that, Tel Aviv will be largely underwater due to rising sea levels. Another source indicates that the same conditions will flood the south of Israel, moving its southern border, which is currently a lot, about 50 kilometers north. If that's not an existential threat to Israel, then I don't know what is. But how did this happen? By burning fossil fuels, uh, which is any carbon, hydrogen, you know, the original materials of the earth and therefore steadily increasing our production of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. In this, I, I really didn't know what is a greenhouse gas. I'm just going to give you the simplest two second lesson. The problem with greenhouse gases is that they resemble glass like a greenhouse and they allow sunlight to pass but block the heat from escaping into space. So that results in slowly warming temperatures and excess carbon dioxide in the air. Trees can help offset the excess of carbon dioxide by absorbing the CO2 and releasing oxygen back into the atmosphere. The problem is that we're cutting down a lot of trees all the time in large amounts. So rather than being driven by fear, let's go back to honoring our commandments and values. Humility and gratitude are foundational values in Judaism. In practical terms, we can start which kind of gives, actually Justine Rubin designed this, a nice in-town patron. In practical terms, we can use less energy, turn off lights, adjust your thermostats, walk or bike instead of driving, consider cleaner forms of energy like solar, use less disposable plastic, which is made by burning fossil fuels, waste less food, consider eating less meat, which also entails burning fossil fuels. Start composting your food waste, plant more trees, start a garden. 
For an even bigger impact, tell your elected officials to support stronger legal accountability for the biggest producers of greenhouse gases and urge your employers to evaluate their energy consumption. So really, you know, we're just sort of honoring our very call as Jews to be gracious, humble, don't waste, and honor life. So this roadmap is, it's sort of the spiral, sort of suggests that you do one thing at a time, but really you can do all of these all at the same time in different amounts. So the first one is your carbon solutions, and those are kind of the big changes. So like in town Chabad here did, they replaced a lot of their lighting, updated their thermostats so that energy is more efficient and things are not on when they don't need to be. So those are things that we can do in our own homes, in our buildings. And then next is learning. So you can actually do what you're doing right now, which is learning what's Jewish about sustainability, why does it matter? And we see the Torah has given us the tools and the roadmap. And then the third, advocacy. And that's where we can use our voice and tell you know, the elected officials that you have put in power that you're their constituent and you don't support this Georgia power plant that's dumping yucky coal ash in your backyard. It's a real thing that's happening. So yeah, you, we can use our voice and we can do that together collectively. There's growing communities doing this. And then the fourth one is you know, the, the fun stuff, planting trees, composting, really connecting with nature. And we really need to use um, our kids, the youth, that's the blue circle. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.